Hello, I'm Lisa Dale Miller, and you are about to hear the second of two Dharma talks I delivered at Marin Sangha in June of 2014. Both of these talks were centered on the controversy that seems to be arising now between the Western Buddhist community and some of the principles in the mindfulness-based interventions community. Over the last few years, John Kabat-Zinn and others have been using a term, the universal dharma, to describe what is being delivered in an eight-week MBSR class. And John has also gone so far as to say that this universal dharma is an accurate presentation of what someone gets when they come to the Buddhist teachings and participate as a Buddhist practitioner in the Buddhist teachings. Seems that this universal dharma is being equated with the Buddha dharma now. Being someone who is steeped in both of these communities, I thought I might have something to offer to bring clarity to whether or not there is a universal dharma. And if so, if that universal dharma has anything to do with the actual Buddha dharma. So I hope you enjoy this talk, and I will return at the end of it. Well, we had some fun last week, huh? <laughs> Just to recap for anybody who wasn't here, in two sentences, after I laid out the pros and cons for a universal dharma, whether there is such a thing, uh, the consensus was there is not such a thing, but there also seemed to be a feeling that there maybe the universal dharma, uh, mindfulness-based interventions of all kinds, or Buddhism light, L-I-T-E. I can't really agree with that. It seems to me as though one thing that mindfulness-based interventions and uh, Buddhist practice share is people generally come to these things to relieve suffering. Would you all agree? But as we sort of looked at last week, the idea of what is suffering is two different things in the Buddhist path and in mindfulness-based interventions. The relief of anxiety or depression or being happier, less stressed. These are mundane ideas of relief of suffering. This is not the ultimate liberation of mind and heart that Buddhism is really prescribing and offering. I mean, in this room, how many of you sought out Buddhism to relieve your suffering? Yeah, pretty common. And would we be in agreement that in our culture, less suffering is often equated with more happiness? Would we be on the same page with that? But of course, our cultural concept of happiness is very different than Buddhism's and the Buddha's idea of happiness. I would say in Buddhism, happiness is probably better understood as well-being. And it certainly isn't happiness in the form of pleasure that feels good. That's not the Buddhist idea. And in fact, happiness in Buddhism is thought to be a natural outcome of what's called right 
view or wise understanding of the nature of how things actually are and the nature of self. And that gets expressed in compassionate action and ethical conduct. That compassionate action, wise understanding, and ethical conduct really constitute happiness. So cultivating wisdom and virtue clarifies which forms of happiness are and are not conducive of suffering. And that's really the key point in Buddhism. At pretty much all of Buddhist practice is geared to give all of us the tools to know what action, what thoughts, what emotions, what livelihood, what effort are actually going to be conducive of well-being for us and the people in our lives and the greater world. That's really the Buddhist project. For me, the reason that mindfulness-based interventions do not qualify as dharma is because selflessness, anatta, or anatman, depending on whether you're speaking Pali or Sanskrit, and nonviolence, which is ahimsa, and nonviolence is that deep intention toward non-harming oneself, others, these are central to the intelligent pursuit of happiness. Without selflessness and without the commitment to ahimsa or nonviolence, there will never be happiness, true well-being. When one knows what intentions and actions facilitate a kind of aliveness that's non-harming, the joy of being in the world is always available to us, irrespective of causes and conditions. And this is the core of the Buddhist teachings, that well-being is not conditional. One can be in the midst of the most difficult circumstances because of your practice, because of your skills, your ability to have right view about what is occurring, inside of you in response to difficult circumstances and how the difficult circumstances are coming about, knowing that in its essence makes us capable of wise conduct and compassionate action. This is the core of the Buddhist teaching. So the Buddha offered two schemas for actualizing well-being especially actualizing non-harming and selflessness in our daily lives. And that they are the Eightfold Noble Path, which is the Fourth Noble Truth, which we looked at a little bit last week, and the Paramitas, or the Paramis, depending on whether you're speaking Pali or Sanskrit. So the Fourth Noble Truth, for me, is a fake-it-till-you-make-it recipe. This is how one conducts oneself in life on the way to enlightenment. This is how to cultivate nirvana. And if we think of nirvana as liberation, and we don't think of it as some ultimate state that you're going to get into and be into for the rest of your time in your human existence, and I invite you not to think of it that way. I invite you to think of nirvana 
as moment-to-moment liberation. When you are not suffering, you are liberated. And this path has eight branches. So right view, knowing the truth of things as they are, fearlessly knowing it. Right thought, and right thought is important. And I actually like right intention better than right thought because I feel like we always have the ability to be intentional in how we act in our daily lives. Right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort. And then, of course, the last two, right mindfulness and right concentration. And we spent some time on that last week. The other Buddhist framework is what's called the perfections. And in the Theravada vehicle, there are 10 perfections. And in the Mahayana vehicle, there are six. These are very powerful practices which are not actually developed quite a lot here in the Theravada vehicle, but over in the Mahayana, there's actually quite a lot of teaching on the paramis and a lot of emphasis on them. These transcendent qualities lead to virtuous action in the world. So the 10 paramis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, transcendent wisdom, zeal, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And in the Mahayana, they only have six. Generosity, virtue, patience, zeal, one-pointed concentration, and transcendental wisdom. And I think that's a separate Dharma talk in and of itself, so I'm actually not going to go there. What I want to offer to you tonight is something that really isn't talked a lot about over here in the Theravada. But it is in the suttas, I promise it's in there, and I even have a couple of quotes. It's discussed much more over in the Mahayana. This teaching is coalesced into something called lojong, which is mind training. The essence of lojong is expressed in two phrases. Stop placing blame on others or on outer circumstances, and embrace all unfavorable conditions as the path to awakening. In Tibetan, lojong, the term lo means mind, attitude, or thought, and zhong means training, familiarization, or purification. Actually, I think we should put an and between all of those, because lojong practices do all three of those. They train the mind, they familiarize the mind with wholesome states, and they purify the mind and the body. This teaching, Lojong, came to Atisha, and Atisha lived around 1000 AD. He was a very revered Bengali Buddhist teacher in the Mahayana vehicle, and he brought the Lojong training to Tibet after he received the teachings from a Sumatran Buddhist master. So because of its universal applicability, Lojong is really a preferred method, I think, for cultivating awakening in daily life. And you could think of it this way. If you truly cherish your happiness, you must seek the welfare of others. This is the bottom line for Lojong. And that's the way they train in selflessness. So if you really want to cultivate your own well-being, seek the well-being of others. 
So the, the first step in Lojong is kind of like psychotherapy. It's very funny. You actually delineate your primary areas of mental and emotional affliction. So you really have to look inside and you have to determine, okay, what, where are the places where I'm feeling most stuck? The recipe that Lojong uses to allow you to work through these afflictions is to train in self-reflection, compassionate renunciation, vigilant mindfulness, which we discussed last week, and self-restraint. And Lojong is very much an engaged form of Buddhism. It really encourages practitioners to courageously heal their own suffering so that they can freely, intelligently, compassionately, and energetically heal the world's suffering. This is not a training in just feeling better for yourself. This is really a training in bodhicitta, awakening for the benefit of all other beings. If you're interested in Lojong, Thupten Jimta wrote a wonderful book on seven-point mind training. So a quote from his book, one of the central themes running through Lojong and the Lojong instructions is the notion of genuine courage, a courage rooted in a clear understanding of the complexity that is our human condition. And that vision is a carefree mind rooted in deep joy. So many of the Lojong practices are cultivation practices of compassion and the joy that comes from compassion. Lojong mind training differentiates itself from the other Buddhist methodologies by encouraging contemplation of the dreamlike nature of mind, self, and experience as a means to realize the nearness of phenomena. Nearness is the antidote for self-importance. For instance, if I use myself, I could be thinking of myself as a very important person right now, sitting up here on this stage, on a cushion, giving a dharma talk. I mean, I could really get into that identification with me, the dharma teacher, right? Or I could just be resting in the nearness of that I am a being sitting here on this cushion. I have some knowledge in front of me and I am imparting it as best I can. That's the mereness. M-E-R-E. M-E-R-E, mere. That is the mereness of my identity. When I rest in the mereness of this identity, I am recognizing emptiness. I am recognizing that I am only here because you are all here. I am only giving these teachings because they were passed down to me. And I am just a conduit offering this. And these words are coming from my mouth and from the synapses firing off in my brain. And you are hearing them and they are being received in whatever way you can receive them. So this is mereness, and all phenomena in its essence is just mere phenomena. And this is emptiness. It doesn't mean that phenomena don't exist. It means that they are 
empty of any inherent self-existence. When we contemplate the dreamlike nature of existence, it invites us to open to the mystery of our own perception. So think about it, the thoughts and the feelings that carry so much weight for all of us and seem so real to all of us are merely dreamlike appearances of mind. And if you think I'm wrong, I invite you to just open up a neuroscience book because what you will see there is you will see that there isn't anything, none of my thoughts are anything other than chemical responses, electrical activity. That's the essence of my thoughts. And when I take birth in my thoughts as something so incredibly important that they would make me harm another human being or hate another human being, or they would cause me to go and do something that was so self-loathing, as many of the patients I work with often do because their thoughts seem so solid to them. I invite them to recognize what their thoughts actually are. Know the actuality of your existence and you will know emptiness and you will know the dreamlike nature of all phenomena. And this is what Lojong mind training invites us into, things as they actually are. You can think of the dreamlike nature of existence in one other way, which is most of us, I know I have this, maybe some of you have it as well, we have an inner life that's continually narrating our experience. Anybody else have that? Oh, yeah. That narration is false. Because anytime you're hearing that narration, you are in narrative focus. You are not in experiential focus. You are not experiencing what is actually occurring. You are in some conceptual model that lives inside of your head. So I invite you, when the narration is happening, go reality test what your mind is telling you is true with what is actually occurring. Just turn your awareness to what is occurring, and you will, you will break the dreamlike ex nature of existence. So that's a more modern way to think about the dreamlike nature of existence. One thing that this training does is it really allows us to regard all aspects of the human condition, even the most horrible aspects of the human condition, as our precious teacher. And because the horrible things that happen in the world are our precious teacher, Lojong mind training invites us to bring them on to the path of liberation. There's nothing to reject. So it's a little bit different than the Theravada vehicle. It's an embracing of the horrible aspects of our personalities, of our humanness. It's an embracing of it with wisdom and compassion so that we can actually use it as our fuel for liberation. If you know you're suffering directly, you liberate that suffering immediately. So you might be wondering, well, this all sounds fine, but did the Buddha actually teach the dreamlike nature of reality, the, the historical Buddha? And the answer is, yes, he did. 
the suttas illustrate how often the Buddha told his disciples to regard all phenomena as dreams. I found at least six places in the Samyutta Nikaya alone where the Buddha says this. And he used other examples like phenomena is an echo or a city in the clouds or like a rainbow or any number of things to illustrate what he termed the illusory nature of the phenomenal world. Dreams just represent one kind of illusion, but what's very powerful is you can actually take this idea of the dreamlike nature of phenomena and you can practice it. So for instance, how many of you have had a dream, you've been sleeping, you've had a dream, and you suddenly are awake in the dream, and you know you're dreaming. How many of you have had this? Pretty common, yes? And even if you're not fully awake in the dream, maybe you have a sense that you're watching yourself in the dream. So ask yourself, when you're dreaming and you're awake in the dream, the dream seems pretty real, doesn't it? And even when you're dreaming and you're not awake in the dream, you know, you wake up from a dream and you're just like, my God, that was so real. Well, ask yourself, when you're dreaming, your whole mind is working. I mean, it's true, the body secretes a chemical so you can't actually move. You can't get up and enact the dream. But your mind is fully functioning just like it is now, perceiving all kinds of things, creating all kinds of things. It all seems very real. So there are certain paths in Vajrayana Buddhism and the Mahayana Buddhism where they actually ask people during the day, ask yourself, is this any different than a dream? I was on a month long with Minja Rinpoche, and he was teaching this dreamlike nature of existence. And someone raised their hand and said, but Rinpoche, if I get stuck with a knife in life, I'm going to be bleeding. It's going to hurt. If I get stuck with a knife in a dream, it doesn't hurt the way it hurts like in real life. And you know what he said? He said, well, if your dreams lasted as long as your real life, believe me, it would hurt as much and you would be bleeding. The Buddha said, sense desires are like bare bones. They are like a dream. Similarly, sense desires are a brief illusion like a dream and disappointing after one wakens from infatuation to reality. I love that one. This is that loss of nearness, a belief that something, we get so infatuated with something, oh, this can save me, oh, this can help me, oh, this will heal me, or oh, this relationship, this will make everything better. You name it, whatever we identify with. We lose the nearness of ourselves and the phenomena. We lose our capacity to be awake and to know things as they truly are. This is from, I would say, the greatest teacher in the Dzogchen tradition. His name was Longchenpa, and he lived around 1300. 
and he wrote extensively. And one of the texts that he wrote is a set of short instructions. And these instructions basically distill all of the Dzogchen teachings. So this is his instruction on taking things to be real. Taking things to be real because of a lack of realization has six shortcomings. You ignore what you already have within you, and so you seek it elsewhere. As a potentially great meditator, you fail to understand the way things actually are, and so remain caught up in their ordinary characteristics. You do not understand that the objects you perceive are deceiving, and so you believe that they truly exist. So this is in 1300. Longchampi didn't know anything about neuroscience or physics. You do not realize that the way of abiding constitutes a single basic space, and so you believe that things are separate and distinct. You fail to cut through your obsessions, so you are seduced by delusion. Watch for these shortcomings that result from being misled by a lack of realization and rid yourself of them. The beauty of Lojong is it really was created for practitioners who wish to be free of internal strain while living in a world filled with negativity and hardship, which is the world that we live in. We can't continually be tightening and constricting against the difficult circumstances of our world. Because if we do that, we are unable to help others open and feel capable of being courageous in the midst of very, very difficult suffering. When life rips away our delusions of primacy through sudden death of a loved one, or a serious disease, or a massive betrayal, or some act of violence, or even a natural disaster. The groundlessness of our existence is exposed. This is generally when people come to the Dharma, when their delusions of security and certainty and continuance that everything's just going to go along being the way it always is. This is when people generally come to the Dharma because these are the moments when we realize impermanence. We realize nothing is certain, nothing. Everything is just mere phenomena. We can really control very, very little out there. There's only one thing we have control over, and that is our mind. So when people fixate on why do bad things happen to me and wrongfully place blame on outer circumstances or even others, I mean, what they're doing is a uniquely human inaccuracy. They are misperceiving the way things actually are. Because we can't magically make life conform to our wishes, the only workable solution we have is to bring adversity onto the path of awakening and transform our unskillful responses to adversity. That's really the only tool we have. And this is what the Buddhist path is all about.
It's impossible to know the ramifications of our actions and the actions of others. It's impossible. We can't know. Our small, little, limited human minds cannot know how our actions reverberate out into the world. But they do. And we really can't comprehend all the causes and conditions that lead to the harmful actions of others. So when we get lost in hatred towards the harm that other people cause us, we are not liberating ourselves from the suffering of the difficulty that occurs, of the adversity around us. We always have the choice to recognize wisely and compassionately that all harm arises from human suffering. And we are human, and we suffer too. And therefore, it's up to us to act in such a way that we are cultivating non-suffering, even in the midst of suffering. Because our destructive emotions feed blaming, resentment, anger, and vengeance, and because they're all fueled by the ego's strong belief in its own significance, we must recognize self-centeredness as the main hindrance to personal and collective well-being. This is the main goal of Lojong, to recognize self-centeredness whenever it arises and to diminish it through kindness, humility, tolerance toward all circumstances and all beings. Here's a few things you can do in order to practice Lojong in your daily life. And these are very mundane, but they really are very Lojong. Don't jump to conclusions. That's the first one. Be open-minded and listen. That's the second. Share your thoughts and feelings with honesty and truthfulness. Be generous in the presence of all mistakes, yours as well as everybody else's. And compassionately recognize that every human being endures suffering just like you endure suffering. But above all, bring all blames to a single source. Can you guess the single source? Self-cherishing. That is the single source. Putting one's benefit above the benefit of others. Grasping at ego delusions and self-idealizations that knowingly or unknowingly cause, contribute, or maintain self and other suffering. When you begin to see how your self-centeredness hurts, you can really begin to understand how self-centeredness is the cause of pretty much all hurt in this world, whether it's our own or the self-centeredness of others. So if someone is harming, is out in the world harming, you can be compassionate toward them because you too suffer from self-centeredness. This is what I do in my life. And I try to bring this pretty much to everything, to any circumstance. When I feel compelled to share the Buddhist teachings with other people, this is the aspect of the Buddhist teachings that I generally share. Self-centeredness, and the dreamlike nature of all things. And I'd like each of you to think to yourselves, 
what is it of the Buddhist teachings that you share with other people, if you share with other people? And in what way do you do that? What is most precious about these teachings for you that you share with other people? Or that you'd like to share, if you're a little reluctant to share, that you'd like to share with them? So I'm going to end, and then I'm going to open it up and have, maybe in the bigger group this time, have you guys share with each other some of the ways that you do share the Buddhist teachings with other people. But I want to just read this last pith instruction from Longchenpa. And um, this one is called Cutting Through the Fetters. And for those of you who know, the fetters are these 10 qualities that the Buddha prescribed that have to be worked through and renounced completely in order for a person to gain full enlightenment. Because of your obsession with wealth and possessions, you are bound by the fetters of your attempts to increase and protect them. Because of your obsession with your family line, you are bound by the fetters of chasing after success and fame. Because of your fixation on an attachment to distractions, you are bound by the fetters of busyness. This is 1300. Can you believe people are bound by the fetters of busyness? <laughs> because of your fixation on the literal interpretation of conventional terms, you are bound by the fetters of pride. Because of your obsession with meditative experiences and realization, you are bound by the fetters of conceit. Because of your obsession with your spiritual practices, you are bound by the fetters of antidotes. So what he's saying is, you are attached to your spiritual practices and use them as an antidote to make everything okay for yourself all the time. That's attachment. That's grasping at your spiritual practice. It would seem difficult to be a practitioner who is free of these fetters. <laughs> I would love to hear from people. How do you share? The, um, the first noble truth, there is suffering. Uh -huh. And um, suffering is universal. We come to Buddhism to learn how to be with it or how to work with it. And uh, the understanding that all of us are suffering and learning how to be with it. One of my big intentions is, mm -hmm. is it kind? Okay. Is it kind? If it's not kind, don't say it. If mm -hmm. it's not kind, don't do it. Mm -hmm. um, and as a parent, uh, it was very good. And my children and I have had conversations years later about the fact that I kept my mouth shut. So do you share this with other people? I share it with my children especially. Uh -huh. and, and my husband and I have some conversations. Um, I have Dharma buddies I share it with. Uh -huh. But I think maybe not so much the words as the practice. Yeah. But I think what's been really helpful for me and what I share a lot with friends who aren't practicing. Yes. I guess it's karma. I have a choice. What do, you know, I don't have to reach a goal, but I could work toward an aspiration. I can have aspirations and work on them. I can cultivate. That word's really important to me. Yes. So it's that I have a choice, and what do I want to choose, and what yes. aspiration. Yes. And if I do this, that's going to happen. Yes. And if I do this, maybe that'll happen. 
Yes. So I think that's one of the things lately that I've been sharing with a couple of friends, a couple of my, my closest friends. That's so beautiful. And really, I think that that spaciousness that comes with choice, to me, that is the teaching of right effort in the Eightfold Noble Path. That's really what right effort is about, is always recognizing choice. And the only way one can recognize choice is to be in awareness. That's it. There is no choice in unawareness. There's only being led around by the nose of the mind and impulsive actions. That's all there is. But. I just recently found out, I have a 30-year-old niece who is a young lawyer who's working in New York at a pretty high-profile firm and ran home, came back, came back. She, it just wasn't working for her. And we were talking recently, it was her birthday and I was over visiting. We were talking and she revealed to me that she had started meditating on her own, she'd gotten an article from some internet website, mm -hmm. and she started meditating on her own. And I thought, wow, my initial reaction would have been to jump in there right away and start proselytizing the dawn. <laughs> and all I did was, I'm very pleased with myself, <laughs> um, just acknowledged her experience, her meditation, and then just kind of gently encouraged her to continue it. And she just, I mean, it was just remarkable that she had picked this up with no particular purpose in mind except just to sort of get herself grounded, I guess. So can I just say, that to me is the ultimate example of not self-cherishing. <laughs> That's the ultimate example. Because what you did was, you didn't stay gripped and clinging to your own idea of what, meant, what this meant for this niece of yours. You were not cherishing your own mentation. You were fully focused on her, and what was important for her. And you acted very wisely. Well, I believe we actually have to stop. So I think, were there meta cards? So I just want to say thank you so much, everyone, for your kind attention. At the end of the talk, a couple of Sangha members came up and expressed their disappointment that I hadn't talked about delivery of mindfulness-based interventions in corporate settings and in uh, the military. And I told them that part of the reason why I'd chosen not to go there in this talk was I really wanted to be a little more personal and show what I thought was important, for me at least, to share with others about the Dharma and somewhat in an effort to stimulate the Sangha to also think about how they share the Dharma with others in their daily lives. And I made a promise, I told the Sangha members, that I was going to create a separate 
Dharma Talk slash podcast on the topic of delivering mindfulness-based interventions in the military and in corporate settings. I do hope that you enjoyed this talk, and I would like to dedicate the merit of both of these Dharma Talks to all beings everywhere. May all beings be liberated from every manner of suffering.